Hello and welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Today I am talking to Dr Will Lorne, who is a lecturer at King's Psychology Department. Um, and I'll be talking to Will about his paper that was recently published titled The Acute Effects of Cannabis with and Without Cannabidiol in Adults and Adolescents, a Randomised, Double-Blind, Placebo-Controlled Crossover Experiment. Uh, so some rigorous science going on there. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Will. Thanks very much for having me. Um, so firstly, your paper looks at the acute effects of cannabis on young people and adults and kind of compares those two. Um, and as the acute effects, it's looking at the kind of intoxication experience or the, or the kind of high rather than the long term issues of, say, mental health or, or the long term uh, effects of using cannabis. Um, before we get into uh, the, the rest of the study, why did you think that this is uh, an important area uh, for research? So one fifth of 16 year olds in England and Wales report using cannabis over the past year and teenagers are at a substantially greater risk of developing cannabis use disorder than adults. And in fact, 75% of 18-year-olds seeking treatment for a drug problem are doing so because of cannabis. So we absolutely must understand what cannabis does to teenagers, um, whether that's in the short term, like this study, and in the longer term, like in other studies. There's a scientific interest, which is that um, adolescent brains are thought to still be developing at age 16, 17, all the way up to age 25. Um, synaptic pruning is continuing to go on. White matter is developing, prefrontal cortex still developing into your early 20s. And the, crucially, the endocannabinoid system is also still maturing. Um, so there's a theory, a hypothesis that teenagers might be more uh, vulnerable or resilient, basically that they would respond differently um, to the acute effects of cannabis, as well as to the to the long-term associations um, with the effects of cannabis. Um, but scientifically, I suppose it's interesting to ask, is the endocannabinoid system different enough in, in a teenage brain to respond um, uh, differently to an adult brain? Um, and then in terms of uh, the impact on um, kind of public health or, or harm reduction, uh, it, it, it was, it's very possible that teenagers are more susceptible to the short-term harms. Um, so they do include unpleasant experiences like psychotic-like experiences, delusions and cognitive disorganisation, um, memory impairing effects. Um, and uh, you know, we would want to deliver that message if that was the case, that if teenagers were more vulnerable to those short-term effects as, you know, separately to the, to the longer-term consequences. Um, and, of course, this has implications on um, potentially legalisation um, in, in countries where they're setting age limits. Again, if, if the... Uh, I mean, no-one is suggesting, I don't think, that governments go as low as age of 16 years to start using cannabis, but you should be interested in, in the consequences of drug use in these uh, potentially more vulnerable groups, even at a um, uh, the acute drug effect level, I think. Yeah, I was quite surprised reading through your background section, uh, you know, when you're kind of summarising the existing literature, because you know, teenagers and cannabis use, uh, you know, it's not a new issue, let's say. You know, cannabis is hardly a new drug in the fact that teenagers are using it 
also not massively surprising. And yet there's a real dearth of literature that looks at that, the acute effects of, of young people using cannabis. Did you get any, any sense as to why there was that gap? I mean, has it been difficult to study uh, so far? Or, or were there any other kind of reasons that came out of the literature? So, for context, there were two previous experiments. Um, one investigated the um, from, from UCL with my um, colleagues, uh, run by Claire Mockrish and Val Curran. Um, that was in 16 to 17 year old boys compared to um, adult men in their late 20s. Uh, and there was another study led by Harriet DeWitt's group um, in, in 18 to 20 year olds, so above above the age of 18. Now, clearly the biggest barrier is, is ethical. Um, I think many ethics committees would balk at the prospect of giving um, 16 to 17 year olds cannabis. Um, now, uh, we believed that, you know, we, we could conduct a safe experiment with teenagers who do already regularly consume cannabis with no um, uh, serious consequences to their, to their cannabis use. You check that they did not have psychotic disorders, that they did not have a first degree family member with a psychotic disorder. Um, and the UCL Ethics Committee um, agreed that this study would be uh, you know, a safe and scientifically valuable endeavor. And it was conducted under medical supervision uh, in, a, in a clinical research facility. But I do suspect that um, it's probably uh, been difficult to conduct this kind of research, maybe because both scientists and ethics committees were um, uh, a little bit anxious about trying it, perhaps. And uh, from the sounds of it, with the amount of safeguards, you know, the amount of appropriate safeguards you need to put in place to run this kind of thing, that it's quite a big endeavour to do. It's it's not a kind of a small project. Absolutely. I mean, it... Uh, it was a huge MRC project funded to uh, Professor Val Curran. Um, it took a year and a half of planning. It took us three years to conduct, to collect the data. And it's taken um, two and a half years to publish and, and analyze. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been the biggest piece of work I've ever been involved with. And um, it's, it has been a big endeavor, yeah. I look forward to summarising the biggest piece of work you've been involved in in 20 minutes. Um, so just a couple of uh, like issues of term, not issues of term, a couple of questions about terminology from the background before we go on to what, what you did. Um, I mean, firstly, for people who aren't familiar, um, and briefly for those who are, uh, what are the differences between THC and CBD and why are they important to kind of separate when you're doing this kind of study? So... THC is the primary psychoactive compound in cannabis. Um, it's a partial CB1 receptor agonist, um, and um, it, that is the compound that gets you high. Um, it produces feelings of um, relaxation, euphoria, uh, but also sometimes anxiety and uh, sometimes psychotic-like experiences. CBD at say 20 to 30 milligrams, which is the dose range that we were really looking at, um, you, you don't get any psychoactive effects from just CBD at, at those doses. Um, it is a, it's not a CB1 receptor agonist or antagonist in any meaningful way. It acts in a complex pharmacological way, so it, it might, it's thought to be a negative allosteric modulator at the CB1 receptor. 
changing the way that the other compounds might bind to that receptor. It inhibits the metabolism of anandamide. So that means that you might get greater levels of anandamide in your system, which is a endogenous um, cannabinoid ligand. And also it's thought to bind to serotonin 1A and dopamine D2 receptors. So it's a dirty drug, even though it's uh, thought of as, as it's, a, it's a wellness product um, uh, being bought at levels we've never seen before across the nation. Um, I, yeah, sorry. I, I was going to say, I, I've seen a lot of adverts for CBD, but none have contained any of that information. So that's incredibly well, helpful. I mean, at the doses that you get in wellness products, which are almost homeopathic, it's probably not even doing any of those things. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so you asked um, how why it's important mm. to separate out those two compounds. Well, THC causes all of the typical short-term effects of cannabis, really, put crudely. But CBD has been suggested to be a kind of harm reduction compound which might mitigate some of the harmful effects of THC in the short term and the long term. Um, and as I just mentioned, it's blown up as a as a sort of wellness product. Um, and it's also being used as a, as a medicine at high doses for all sorts of um, disorders, including um, childhood epilepsy and uh, potentially psychosis. So uh, it's absolutely crucial to separate these two compounds out there. Although they're both natural phytocannabinoids, they have totally different effects. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, it's very clear. Um, so if we move on to what, what you actually did uh, with your study, um, and to start with, just so people can get an idea of, of kind of the setup of the experiment, you split people into three conditions. This is the kind of randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled part of this. So you had um, uh, one that was THC, one that was THC and CBD, and one that was the placebo. Uh, can you just uh, tell us what you use as a, as a placebo cannabis? And, like, and how did people take those compounds and, and how did you blind them, I suppose? Yeah, um, all uh, really interesting questions and things that we ended up thinking about a lot and trying to come up with um, clever uh, but relatively cheap solutions to, um, including bin bags. Um, so um, the, all of the cannabis was um, procured from a medical cannabis company in the Netherlands called Bedrican, um, and they provided the placebo cannabis as well, which is um, a bit like uh, alcohol-free beer. Um, they, they grow the cannabis and then through some clever chemical process, they extract out all of the relevant cannabinoids, so leaving negligible amounts of THC and CBD. Um, the other types of cannabis were THC-only cannabis um, called Bedrican and CBD only cannabis called Bedrolite, it's their, their, their cannabis brand names. Um, and um, they are combined in different proportions to produce the conditions that we have here. <clears throat> they were vaporised using a volcano vaporizer into um, plastic bags or special um, inhalation balloons. Um, and They're about the size of a pillow, aren't they? Just, sorry, you're yeah. making hand movements, but... For the benefit of people who are listening on audio, the, the hand movements are about the size of a pillow. The, I, that's an excellent uh, <laughs> description, and, and um, but I wouldn't recommend resting your head on them. They're not quite as comfortable as a regular um, regular pillow. You'd get kind of crinkly sounds and lots of uh, terpenes and flavonoids <laughs> coming out and disrupting your sleep. But um, uh, we put a bin bag around the um, transparent pillow-sized balloon 
um, because interestingly the different types of cannabis um, produce different amounts of uh, vapor or you know you can basically see that the 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 THC and CBD um, or especially the CBD condition um, has more kind of just thicker vapor so we needed to blind the participants and the experimenters from that so we had um, white bin bags uh, around the transparent balloons to prevent that from 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 participants being unblinded um, and then and then and then there was a standardized inhalation procedure which lasted um, for about 20 minutes um, breathing in uh, for about four seconds holding it breathing out etc and the double blind part is is that neither the um participants or the researchers knew which bag contained which uh, which of the conditions yeah correct and, and also crucial point it was a crossover design so each participant received every one of the conditions on different sessions and the order of those sessions was randomized um, is, is there an issue when you're studying um, psychoactive drugs whereby if someone's on the placebo group fairly quickly they know that yeah that's a massive problem uh, with psychopharmacology experiments. Some studies use active placebos. I mean, a lot of the ketamine research is now moving to have a midazolam active control. Um, some of the psychedelic research has done that. I haven't seen it much in cannabis research, so maybe <clears throat> a way to um, improve our um, uh, research field. But obviously adding an extra condition, very expensive, very time consuming. Um, the placebo effect is seen, um, but it's seen much more strongly if you get the placebo first, because um, you don't know what the drug feels like yet. If you get the placebo last and you've had your two active cannabis conditions first and second, then, uh, well, so long, I mean, you don't know, but you're pretty certain it's, it's placebo. Um, and um, that's why having the order randomized and counterbalanced is is crucial um, so some of the some of the mechanics of, of running this you, you know you set up a um, a kind of lab I suppose where people came in and used the cannabis and then you, you you took measures which will come to the results in a little bit so I mean like two questions firstly um, you used home office approved cannabis was that is that correct so medical cannabis from the Netherlands mm procured from Bedrocan but under Professor Val Curran's home office license okay. so um, and also in Vicro's um, home office license so so yeah the experiment took place um, at in Vicro which is a, a private research centre kind of within Hammersmith Hospital um, and yeah if you as as you know as I guess many of your listeners know if you um, want to store and administer uh, controlled drugs then you have to have this home office license. And, and are the requirements of that home office license very stringent? Are there lots of things that you have to demonstrate and do and mark down on a daily basis in order to use these substances? Yeah, uh, but thankfully, uh, Professor Val Curran and, 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 and many other people uh, at Invicro um, kind of take the burden for that. Um, and my other question, just about the pra pragmatics of, of running this, this trial, I mean, is it... Is it difficult? You go about your day on a daily basis and, and you, you have a participant in for one of your studies and for several hours presumably that person is, is highly intoxicated and at times probably can't stop laughing. Does, does that make for a challenging work day or a challenging research 
project setting. Um, how do you manage that, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, uh, less challenging and more entertaining than sitting at your desk all day, for sure. Uh, it's, um, yeah, I never found it... Um, uh, I guess I just really enjoyed running the experiment and, and it was supported, it was a huge team effort, it was supported by loads of RAs and master's students. Um, of course there were challenges, I mean it was never a challenge if someone was enjoying themselves really, like yeah you'd have to direct them back to the task or the questionnaire, but um, it was, it, of course it was a challenge and it was, um, you know, you had to act very um, cautiously when they were starting to have a bad time, which happened, you know, fairly regularly. Um, anxiety, paranoia sometimes creeping in. Of course, those were things we were measuring. Um, so, yeah, like what, I mean, sometimes you might get a drop in blood pressure. You, you, the nurses would come in, the doctor might have to um, come and check that they can continue on with the session. Um, and the, but the most kind of, probably interesting bit was at the end we did a retrospective psychiatric interview based on the PANS um, usually used for uh, people with psychosis where by about you know four hours later they'd completely sober really and they were talking about their experience that they just had and that was when they really kind of opened up if they had had a um, particularly colourful um, uh, florid, uh, potentially psychotic-like experience. We had people saying that they could hear Carly Rae Jepsen in the scanner singing to them, or um, <laughs> you know, and, and and some really you know um, potentially scary thoughts going through people's heads. You know, like we were the police and we had captured them and we were taking their brain scans to give to the government. Um, but on the whole, it took a lot of effort and um, it took a lot of hard work and organisation and communication with the participants but running running the experiment wasn't um, uh, awful or, or tricky. Um, you, you mentioned there about participants going into uh, like a brain scanner, was it MRI scanner? Yeah. Um, so I mean let's, you know, let's move on to, to the outcome, so what, what were you measuring here, what were you trying to find out and, and whilst you're describing that maybe you could kind of give a bit of a summary of, of what you found as well? Yeah. Well, so I'll focus mainly on the um, primary outcome variables and then I'll give a, a very quick overview of the secondary outcome variables. So that the primary outcomes were um, subjective feelings, um, basically how high did the people get. Um, verbal memory, which we know is impaired um, following cannabis administration um, and psychotic-like experiences um, or psychotomimetic effects. Um, <clears throat> they were all measured using uh, what questionnaires or, or the, the verbal memory was assessed using a the pros recall task where people are um, given a um, and they listen to a news story through a fake news story through some headphones and have to write down as much as they can um, immediately afterwards and then after a short um, delay. The secondary outcome variables were um, lots of things, including fMRI outcomes for about reward processing, response inhibition, so impulse control and working memory. Uh, we also included some positive outcomes, so um, how much pleasure people took from eating chocolate, um, from listening to music and also watching a Simpsons cartoon. Um, and I took 
great pleasure myself in selecting some of my uh, favourite Simpsons cartoon <laughs> moments. Um, so validated only by uh, my personal preference in, in Simpsons cartoons. But was this 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 is, this is stage has not been published in the Addiction Journal. I'm not sure it would have quite met the standards. Required. Is there more of a gold standard than Dr. Wilhorn's choice of Simpsons episodes? I, I genuinely put myself up there as kind of in the top percentile <laughs> of Simpsons fans. So um, I think I did a pretty good job. Anyway, um, other things like uh, dissociative effects, um, effort-related decision-making. But yeah, really focus on those first three um, subjective effects, verbal memory and psychotic-like experiences. And, and ultimately, in, when comparing young people and, and uh, non-young people, um, uh, you didn't find any differences. Right, sorry, yeah, I didn't describe any of my results there. Got too distracted by The Simpsons. Yeah. Um, so, overview, um, long story short, teenagers who use cannabis about one to three days a week and adults who use cannabis similar frequency, they showed exactly the same profile of effects. So they had the same level of high, same amount of verbal memory impairment and same level of psychotic-like experiences. So our hypothesis was not supported and we conducted Bayesian statistics to support the null that these effects of uh, THC were equivalent in the groups. Well, I mean, were you surprised at this finding? Were you, were you expecting to find that there was a bigger difference? Yes, in the sense that Claire Mokrish's 2016 experiment, which led to this research, showed that teenagers were more resilient to the effects of cannabis than adults. And um, uh, some research by Harriet DeWitt's lab had showed um, other differences between teenagers and adults, not quite as clear cut. But the, you know, the, the, the existing research had suggested that there would be a difference. And, and of course, the theory goes the other way. And it's like, well, teenagers might be more vulnerable. Now, what we did really well was match the adults and the adolescents perfectly. They used the cannabis at the same frequency. Um, they used similar amounts. They used similar types. And we, we paid such close attention to that because um, you could imagine a experiment you know this 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 part manipulation of the study was is, is not randomized or experimental right we had to find teenage cannabis users in the real world and adult cannabis users in the real world we couldn't mm. experimentally create them so it's so important that you make them similar on their cannabis use um, and we did that better than previous work um, and i i think that's probably why given the effects of tolerance that we eliminated any difference in that why we showed a similar effect so then am I surprised that given we made that equivalent that there was no difference well um, maybe you know the endocannabinoid system is actually more more mature by the age of 16 and 17 than, than we previously thought um, maybe if we did research with 13 to 14 year olds and that would be a whole different thing so you need parental consent and I'm not suggesting that, but maybe you'd see a difference there. Um, so, yes, I was surprised. And, and so coming back to the point that you made at the beginning of this, uh, this podcast about this information being useful for people who are deciding the ages at which uh, perhaps regulations uh, go in, at which kind of um, perhaps harm reduction mechanisms uh, are used. 
Do your do your findings suggest that that perhaps uh, young people aren't as vulnerable as has previously been um, been stated? Well, the crucial thing to note, which you noted at the start of the discussion, is that this has no implications on long term consequences mm. of, of cannabis use. So, and we've done a different program of research about that, um, and I would point you to our um, other work that we published last year in Psychopharmacology and Journal of Psychopharmacology if you're interested in that. But cannabis could have very profoundly worse long-term effects in teenagers than adults. Um, it doesn't seem to, in my opinion, but it could. And But the, but the acute effects could be exactly the same. Um, and, you know, the policy should be based around long-term consequences. Um, and also... No one is encouraging teenagers to smoke cannabis. I mean, there's clearly smoking cannabis regularly as a teenager is going to disrupt your education, um, is going to produce negative effects. Um, that's like no one would sensibly recommend that. Um, importantly, our study shows that teenagers respond similarly to adults. So teenagers are still showing these short-term harms that, that, you know, verbal memory impairments, um, psychotic-like experiences, anxiety. Now, also the positives people are looking for, but it, teenagers are not supermen, superwomen. Um, they still experience some of the harms, the, the same kind of short-term harms as adults. Um, so I guess that would be the kind of balanced harm reduction advice. Um, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's the kind of... Um... It's the kind of media expectation that every study should should find out whether cannabis or whichever drug is good or bad. Yeah. But actually, it's about the outcomes that you're looking at and acknowledging that there are dozens and dozens of outcomes that sit outside the remit of this study that that you need to look at and consider. Um, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. And um, on the other thing, so that was comparing ages, comparing teenagers with adults. Um, but you also compared the kind of high, low, and middle uh, CBD. And again. You, we surprised to find that CBD didn't seem to make any difference. And this, I think, aligns with some of Amir England's findings from, from last year, I think. Um, are you starting to get a bit a better picture of the role of CBD in cannabis? Well, we definitely predicted that CBD would moderate the effects of THC, um, that CBD would protect the participants from some of the harms, again, short-term harms that uh, we've talked about throughout this, um, based on some previous work that Amir England did in 2013 and Celia Morgan did in, in the 2010s. Um, and then actually when we've conducted more uh, carefully controlled research in the lab with kind of um, doses that are more typically found within cannabis, so ecologically valid levels of, of CBD, um, Amir England re reported last year that CBD had no impact on, on any of these um, outcomes, similar outcomes to the ones we've described here. And then our group has essentially replicated what Amir found. Um, so disappointing in a way, there was, a, there was something quite compelling or, or um, there was something quite uh, pleasing about the idea that cannabis might produce a compound which could protect against some of the harmful effects of um, another part of that compound which got you high. Um, and so I think a lot of the 
you know, people who are stakeholders, cannabis users, people in the medical cannabis industry are disappointed by these results. Um, but that doesn't mean that CBD taken at much higher doses medically or perhaps even chronically at lower doses could have could have effects. Um, but yeah, again, to, to answer your question simply, yes, I was surprised by um, the null effects based on some of the older work, but actually in the last four to five years, there's been a real swing back to, or, or a swing towards thinking CBD doesn't really moderate the impact of THC at, at these kind of, uh, you know, one to 30 milligram dose levels. Got you. Um, okay, in, in terms of, so I just wanted to kind of ask a little bit about one of the kind of, I get kind of off the main track uh, findings. You, you, you talked about one of the explanations, or I can't, maybe it was a, a strength or a limitation, I can't remember, but that CBD, the presence of CBD in the vapour had the potential to make people cough as they were using it and that, that this might have been an explanation for some of the differences between the conditions. And, and there you start talking about the uh, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic effects of those substances. Um, can you just explain a bit about what was going on there and, and how that might have an impact on the study that you're doing and that, that other people might? So there's a lot in that question, Rob. Um, first of all, uh, the CBD in the THC and CBD condition did lead to increased coughing. We measured that uh, subjectively. People uh, reported how much they coughed and we also reported how much uh, the participants had coughed. Um, and that led to participants taking longer to consume the C THC plus CBD condition in comparison to the THC condition. Um, so we tried to standardise the inhalation process as much as possible, um, but there was a slight difference there. And because we took our first post-drug blood sample always at 20 minutes, that meant that the THC plus CBD condition was finished slightly closer in time to that first blood sample than the THC condition. Um, so there was, in a way, a kind of artificial um, increase in the uh, amount of THC that was in the blood um, in that CBD condition because they just finished inhaling the, the balloon more recently. So the body had had less time to actually metabolize the THC. That's one thing that we think has probably played a role here. And some of our um, extra secondary analyses support that. But on the other hand, um, there's some really interesting proper hardcore pharmacokinetic work coming out of Tom Arkell's group and Ryan Vandry's group showing that CBD might genuinely change the metabolism of THC in the body, perhaps delaying the process by which THC is actually broken down um, and therefore boosting the levels in your body for a while. So we've got a lot to unpack there um, and uh, I, don't, I don't have the answers uh, right here just yet. Okay, uh, it's been it's been fascinating uh, talking to you about cannabis, about your study, about THC, CBD, and um, and everything in between. Uh, Dr. Will Lorne, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.